When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, because under the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program and its update, they talk about evaluating your program at two points. One, at the time the incident occurred, and two, at the time of settlement. So it gave you an opportunity to hopefully remediate. And we saw that, I think, a great example of that with ABB, where they worked very hard to remediate their program during the pendency of the investigation. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to another edition of Compliance Into the Weeds. In this episode, Matt and I take a deep dive into the recent Kenneth Poli speech announcing changes to the corporate enforcement policy. We ask the reasons for these changes, what they might mean for the compliance professional, and more importantly, for compliance programs, and do they change the calculus for a corporation about self-disclosing or not? All in this episode. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for the award winning Compliance into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up the changes in the corporate enforcement policy as announced by Kenneth Polite last week. Um, so, Matt, you want to give us a roundup of what uh, Herr Polite uh, gave us information-wise last week. Sure, Tom. So this was a speech that uh, Mr. Polite, the assistant AG for the criminal division, he gave this speech at Georgetown Law School last week at one of those uh, corporate law events that big thinkers get invited to. Um, and what he had announced was, an, I guess, an expansion, let's say, of the corporate enforcement policy, the CEP, basically to be more of a sweetener or an enticement to companies that have had corporate misconduct trouble, principally FCPA violations, but really any t- sort of criminal trouble, uh, more enticements for them to self-disclose the misconduct and to cooperate with investigations, even when the case in question has aggravating factors that might normally have given those companies more pause that perhaps they should keep quiet. Um, so basically what it is, is that if you are a company that does have a violation that has aggravating factors, and we can talk about what those are shortly, you could still secure maybe a declination to prosecute from the Justice Department if you, number one, self-disclose the misconduct immediately. Number two, you already have an effective compliance program in place. And then three, you provide an extraordinary, and that is the word, an extraordinary level of cooperation and remediation. If you do all those three things, you then might still get a declination, even if your case involves aggravating circumstances that until now would have ruled a declination out of the cards. So I found a lot in there to unpack, Matt, but I'm going to start Mm -hmm. with the 
uh, many of us, uh, certainly myself, had questioned in the Monaco memo or after the Monaco memo came out, where was the incentive for both recidivists to self-disclose if uh, Deputy Attorney General Monaco was uh, promising lots of pain for recidivists or uh, if it was a close call, and even if you weren't a recidivist, were there any additional incentives for companies to self-disclose if there were aggravating circumstances? I thought the police speech answered those questions, um, but it, it went in a little bit different way than I had anticipated because it seemed to me it was pulling back from what I saw as part of the severity of the Bonico memo towards recidivists. Um, any thoughts on that one way or the other? Well, I think maybe the best way to answer it is, I think the, this new policy answers some of your questions, Tom, although it spawns others that I would like to get into. Um, we still have not seen, I don't think, uh, a real stern interpretation of the Monaco memo with an FCPA recidivist yet. I know we just had ABB's case come down where they were the first three-time repeat offender, uh, but they got a fairly reasonable result because they had done an awful lot to improve their program. Uh, and also their most recidivist conduct was, I think, 12 years ago. It was 2010 or 2011, something around that. Um, that's not the same as you're having a settlement now and your last repeat offense was six years ago, say. Uh, where maybe things are going to be more stern. We still don't know what that might be. Um, I guess the question here is just whether this these sweeteners are going to change the calculus that happens within the compliance department, within the boardroom, within the legal department about should we now self-disclose this embarrassing incident that we have, whatever it is, this criminal incident that we have, I'm sure there are still plenty of voices out there until now who have said corporate enforcement policy be damned. Uh, this is a big thing. Why don't we just fix it? Let's hope nobody notices. And if they don't, we're scot-free. There are people who would still make that argument, uh, probably, you know, weenies and outside counsel, but they can make that argument. And the question now is, will all of these additional incentives for the aggravating offenses and whatnot aggravating circumstances, will that change the calculus and the thinking to say, okay, even with this very bad thing that we have, let's disclose and cooperate anyways. Um, sounds to me like maybe it will. Uh, it, the other point here, you know, we've got two sides to consider. Are these sweeteners enough to make people say, yes, let's do it? And are they going to make it even worse and more punitive for companies that still say, nope, we're going to keep quiet and hope nobody notices. Like, what is that side of the coin going to look like? And I, we haven't seen it yet. And then I still have a whole bunch of questions about how do all of these three new prongs, how do they work in practice and what does this mean? But at least right now, you know, it's um, it gives a lot of companies a lot of thought, I think. So one of the reasons I think this seriously gives companies who may be recidivist Incentive, Matt, is the 75% yep. uh, reduction, and that's a reduction off the low end of the sentencing range. ABB got a reduction off the middle of the sentencing range, as I recall, and that difference can be millions. It can be tens of millions. It could perhaps even be hundreds of millions 
because the calculation for the sentencing range is different than these percentage discounts or even a calculation under the corporate enforcement policy. It comes from the U.S. Sentencing Guideline. So you go through a formula and you get a range, low end, middle range, middle and high. And if you um, have a, between 100 million and 200 with a 150 in the middle and you get a 75% discount off the low end, well, you've saved some percentage of that difference immediately. And then you're getting the deduction down from the low end of the sentencing range. So I think there's really an incentive for recidivists to come forward and those with aggravating circumstances. Uh, I do completely agree with your point. We have not seen the uh, Monaco memos component around recidivists or a company who did not self-disclose. But let me, uh, there's something else I've been thinking a lot about, uh, and that is the measuring of the effectiveness of your compliance program at the time of the incident in question. Yeah. Because under the corporate enforcement, uh, well, rather, uh, the evaluation of corporate compliance program and its update, they talked about evaluating your program at two points. One, at the time the incident occurred, and two, uh, at the time of settlement. So it gave you an opportunity to hopefully remediate. And we saw that, I think, uh, a great example of that with ABB, where they worked very hard to remediate their program during the pendency of the investigation. And um, But the second thing that really intrigued me was the definition of what's now an effective compliance program. Because it seems to be, did your internal controls pick up this violation? And then it moves to immediately self-disclose. Um, I have to assume it's got to be broader than simply that, meaning it could be your whistleblower hotline, although perhaps that's a broad definition of an internal control. But if you don't pick it up internally and it comes to you in some other manner, does that still qualify um, as an effective compliance program. And you and I have talked about effective compliance programs probably as long as I've known you. And this is the first time in, I can recall we have something with this specificity. And so I, if a company doesn't pick up, it used to be how do you determine if you didn't have a good compliance program or you had a violation? Well, now it's did you pick up the violation and then did you move forward to self-disclose? Did that uh, give you any pause or raise any questions for you? Well, I mean, before we even get there, cause I, I got hung up on, I think, maybe a, a preceding issue is that let's go back to these aggravating factors. The whole point of this new policy is to appeal to companies that have an FCPA issue with aggravating factors. Now, what are those? Um, for example, management, senior management's participation in the misconduct, pervasive misconduct within the company, significant profit to the company from its misdeeds. Now, let's just start with the first of those two, senior management involvement or pervasive misconduct. How can you have those aggravating factors and an effective compliance program at the same time? Because if we are defining an effective compliance program as a strong culture of compliance and a strong tone at the top, if those are your aggravating factors, I would say you probably don't have a strong culture of compliance or you don't have an effective tone at the top. Therefore, you don't have an effective compliance program at the time of the incident 
which is what Mr. Polite said was important at the time of the misconduct. So how do we reconcile this? And I don't know how we do. Um, Tom, if you have thoughts or if any listeners out there have thoughts, email them in and we'll get them on another day. But this seems right there that I don't see how this all comes. Well, we had those aggravating factors in ABB. We had the corruption going from South Africa to the corporate office in Switzerland. We had high profitability. We had a pervasive system of corruption, at least when it came to the Eskom contract in South Africa. So it, it seemed to me those factors were met. And if we go back to cognizant technologies, which is the many yeah. ways the bellwether of aggravating factors, we had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme or alleged C-suite involvement. Uh, GC and CCO, both who have denied uh, they were part of any bribery scheme. But um, it seemed to me this was just uh, almost written around what the DOJ did or gave or settled with ABB on. Kind of. And I mean, they had to have been thinking about these policies at the time the ABB matter was getting close to resolved. Um, but I still... I would like more clarity around that. You know, an ABB would be a great case. And I will give credit to uh, Kenneth Polite that on many of his speeches, he actually will pick up a specific case and he will walk through. Here's how these facts of this case fit this abstract policy that I'm talking about. I'd love to see that sort of a treatment with ABB and this new enforcement policy at some time um, in case Mr. Polite is listening to our podcast. Uh, the other big question I have is I'm also stuck um, on this term of extraordinary cooperation. Uh, we have already that under the pre-existing enforcement policy, you had to give full cooperation. I've heard also that there are gold standard cooperation. Now we have the extraordinary cooperation, which I guess is against above the gold standard. So maybe it's platinum standard cooperation. Um, I'm not sure what that means in practice. And honestly, I don't know that Mr. Polite really clearly defined it. I think he even said in his speech that, you know, we kind of know it when we see it. I'm not sure I believe that. And I that's open to interpretation. I don't like giving lawyers room for interpretation because then Lord knows what you people do. Um, but, you know, so there's a lot of that. And I also, I will be cynical here. And Tom, you may be surprised. Sometimes I'm cynical about this. I think he was talking about extraordinary cooperation to get ahead of the complaints that the Justice Department is trying to strong arm corporations into doing investigations really as an adjunct of the prosecution, which is not supposed to be. And he did even talk about that in his policy, that uh, in his speech, he said we would never expect companies to be adjuncts of the Justice Department. And that came right after he talked about extraordinary cooperation. So is, are we really just trying to get around the inevitable criticisms that are going to come up that um, the Justice Department is unduly pressuring corporations to do its bidding? And uh, that's the other big thing that I think about with this policy. Uh, I'm shocked, shocked that you're being cynical. Uh, but actually, you've suggested to me the standard, which is, of course, uh, gold, platinum and double platinum. We uh, go back to our teenage years. So uh, perhaps we have a standard in place we could uh, reference at least. Actually, I did not see those two tied together uh, because, uh, and I see them as separate. And this uh, 
requirement for ex- extraordinary co- uh, cooperation that uh, they'll know it when they see it, um, and they'll tell us when they see it, but they won't tell us before they see it or tell us what to do to get it. So uh, you can look over the wall, um, and we may or may not answer you, uh, but that's it. The Fifth Amendment problem is one that is very troubling to U.S. federal district courts. And Mm -hmm. the DOJ, I think, needs to have the ability to have some way to work with corporations, whether it's guiding investigations, whether it's um, suggesting approaches, and uh, because they're always looking at a bigger picture than the case, simply the case in front of them. There are multiple cases in front of them, and they may want uh, investigations in different directions for different reasons. The problem of DOJ is twofold. One is when information is turned over to the Department of Justice, it loses its privilege. If you have an attorney-client privilege document and you turn it over to a third party, it doesn't matter who that third party is. It doesn't matter whether it was required or not. You lose privilege on that. And when you voluntarily turn over your investigation and you finger a defend individual, then that individual has the right, and we're seeing that played out in the cognizant uh, CEO and GCs, to get the investi- full investigation, what was turned over to the DOJ, and the attorney work product that led to that. The Fifth Amendment problem is problems about or queries about self-incrimination because people are being threatened that if you don't cooperate, we will fire you. Um, And so far, judges have been sympathetic but have not come down yet and said, um, yes, you should have had that right and you should have been advised of that. But I think we're coming very close to that. And I don't think a lead statement is going to matter one whit to a federal district judge, uh, he's going to say, I'm going to look at the effect and impact, uh, not your words, Mr. Polite. And if this employee was told by the company, you're fired or you you either cooperate or you're fired and that was turned over to the government, that's going to be enough. I haven't got to that point yet, but that may be where we're headed. I, I think so. And I think you raised a lot of good points. Number one, that uh, judges are not going to care about all the other cases like Mr. Polite has to care about. They have a case. They care about that case. Um, and I think it is probably inevitable that at some point some federal judge is going to rule on this issue in some way that the Justice Department does not like. I also somewhat wonder if this might add more pressure or dynamic to a debate that I know already happens between compliance saying, yes, we should report, and general counsel saying, well, maybe we shouldn't, because it's not just that this information becomes public if it's privileged, but I mean, it could wind up being fodder for civil litigation uh, with plaintiff lawyers, and you've got other expenses to think about that. This is one of the few times I will say legal does have some concerns that are valid that compliance doesn't. You know, legal does have to think a lot about civil litigation exposure and plaintiff lawyers making my life miserable. 
And how are we going to handle that in addition to our Justice Department and doing the right thing, which is what compliance officers have to think about. Um, so I can see that there might be some extra pressures here. I don't know how much extra pressure. I don't know if that's really going to change the conversations that much. But, um, you know, the the only thing that I jumped out at me as the easiest for companies to try and understand and achieve is the immediate disclosure. Um, and again, going back to ABB, because they really did try to disclose. It was just by a quirk of happenstance that they flubbed it up, uh, is that somehow media published this before they actually had the meeting that was already on the books with the Justice Department. Um, that part, I think, is pretty straightforward. You know, When the boards and the CEO are wondering, what are we supposed to do? Dude, you're supposed to disclose as soon as you can. That is something that uh, Cognizant Technologies did, and they got a very favorable settlement for what was a really ugly set of facts long before this set of uh, enforcement policies came along. So I still think self-disclosure as soon as you can is going to be the first go-to move. I still, however, think that we've got a lot of um, unclarity around uh, what an effective compliance program actually is, if you also have aggravating factors, and what extraordinary, super-duper cooperation really is going to be. Um, I think it's going to make for some very interesting conversations between, or maybe among, CEO, legal department, compliance department, and the board. Um, and as much as we talk about uh, the FCPA, because we all know that's most of what our listeners talk about, there's many other corporate uh, misconduct cases here that I wonder how will this intersect with false claims act uh, claims that, you know, they can potentially be huge amounts of money. Um, and if you are a U.S. based, say, healthcare company, you know, you might not have a robust compliance program modeled on what we think of as FCPA, because a lot of healthcare companies operating in the U.S., they don't operate outside the U.S. boundaries. So they think, oh, we don't have FCPA risks, and maybe their compliance programs are a bit immature around this. Um, so I, like, it's fascinating. We have to think a whole lot more about what this means. But like I said, Tom, at, a while back, I think this answers some questions, and then I think it has created many more that um, I'm still unclear on where we go from here. Unclarity. I love it. Disclarity? Lack of clarity. I, I wouldn't go as far as disclarity because it's not the anti antithesis of clarity, but perhaps unclear. I did like that. Unclarity. Yes. Uh, I agree with you, Matt, and a lot more questions raised uh, as well. I'm particularly troubled by the points you raised around what is an effective compliance program at the time of the incident. Uh, is it simply that your internal controls picked it up? Uh, because I think that does a disservice to corporations. But I think this uh, follows on the Monaco memo with what our colleague Karen Woody said, the heat is on, the heat is on compliance programs and the heat is on compliance programs to detect and then move to self-disclose and then move to remediate. So uh, I think we're going to be visiting and revisiting this topic again. I think so too. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'm pleased to announce that Compliance Under the Weeds won a 2022 Communicators Award in two categories for the best co-host and the best business podcast. So thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Awards. I hope you will join Matt and I in next week.
Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.